Hello and welcome to the brand new platinum edition of Romaniac's podcast. As you might have read last week, Liam Fox paid £107,000 for a business podcast that consisted of six episodes and got a grand total of 8,300 listeners. Apparently, this is now the going rate. So we got on to Dr Fox's Department for International Trade for some of that sweet podcast money. And now we're recording on platinum microphones in a floating studio in the Caribbean and the non-vegan cast members are chuffing down their swan burgers. I'm Naomi Smith and I've got some of our regulars here. Hello, Ros Taylor of the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Would you listen to Liam Fox- Fox's <clears throat> podcast? Did you listen to it? I didn't before, but I have now. Well, I started anyway and I just got through the first five minutes of uh, an episode. It was a bloke banging on about how he exports uh, beard products. Beard? And, yeah, beard. He was explaining that he has a lovely beard himself and he wanted to share this joy with the world. And um, okay. so there was a lot of beard stuff and then I'm afraid I found asleep because I was kind of using it as an alternative to my normal normal app that sends me to sleep. So, um, yeah, anyway. But, but but the big thing with this, isn't it, is, is it not that it's insane to bring out a podcast about encouraging people to export when you're just about to totally shake up and change the way all the rules work for exporting? So no one knows, has any certainty about it at anything. I mean, it's, it's exactly that kind of thick of it conversation you can imagine yeah. going on. Like, we must have a podcast. Yes, yes, let's budget for one. And then somebody saying, yeah, what is a podcast after after they've already budgeted for it? Um, we've also got actor, comedian, writer and director Ingrid Oliver here. Hello, Ingrid, Hello. how are you? I'm, you know I'm feeling very fighty today. Good, because yeah. we've not been on a show together for ages. We haven't, you know, we really haven't. Um, and I, Well, I'm wearing leopard print, so I mean business rawr. today. Brexit business, rawr, yeah. Yeah, um... Why is Chris Grayling still in post? Do you know what? Um, I, I Do these people have no shame? That is what I would ask. I have no idea. Well, we do have some idea. Um, he's, he's a really good friend. He's been a really good friend to Theresa. Um, she hasn't got too many of those at the moment, Exactly. So he's worth £2.7 million uh, pounds worth of friendship. Uh, you know, it's, Brexit, if anything, has, made me, has just done wonders for my imposter syndrome. Uh, if ever I think I'm not good enough... Just, I just, look at, just look at a picture of Chris should, we should, You should have like an Instagram account with motivational quotes just superimposed on, on, on pictures of Chris Grayling's face going, you, you are enough or <laughs> dare to fail. Um, there was this amazing correction in the New York Times. I don't know if people saw it. It said, because of an editing error, an earlier version of this article misstated the amount that a Labour Party report claimed Chris Grayling's misadventures had cost British taxpayers. It is £2.7 billion, pounds, not £2.7 million. Pounds. I mean, the orders of magnitude of fuck-up are just <laughs> ever-increasing with him. Um, will little children, do you think, in the future be saying, yeah, but Chris Grayling, to their teachers and parents when they when they cock up? I mean, have we got to those levels of, is he now just a meme of himself? I mean, and I'd like to think that children would know who Chris Grayling was. I... I, I... Well, he's like, well, because Germ- in Germany we have these um, fairy tales, like really sinister figures who make you stop, who stop you from doing things, like Struvelpeter, who's one that has, I don't know if you know him, shock-headed Peter. Um, so Chris Grayling could be like a German, a Germanic, nightmarish uh, fairy tale figure that stops children overreaching. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Completing our team this week is our new regular guest that we're delighted is here. Melissa Chamon is a French journalist, broadcaster, and she specialises in migration issues. But she's also a music writer uh, whose new book, Massive Attack, Out of the Comfort Zone, is out this week. Welcome back to Romaniacs, Melissa. How are you? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm great. I've been going to a lot of uh, non-Brexiting places recently. Oh, and you lucky thing. <laughs> <laughs> including Paris. This still exists over there. And uh, Glasgow and Bristol recently, as you said, just for the launch of that book. This oh, weekend. fantastic. Um, so Massive Attack are pretty pro-Euro, aren't they? Um, there, there was a track on the Protection album called Eurochild and they had a sort of strange bulbous mascot with U-stars all over it. Indeed. Did you ever fathom what that was all about? Yeah, of course. I mean, you good pick on that song. Actually, they played that song on July 1st, just after the referendum mm. when it happened. So, hey, guys, we're here, this band, where everyone's an immigrant. Thank you very much. We're also touring the world and yeah. especially Europe and our tour is starting tomorrow, so great. And and so that song was like the national anthem for the summer 2016. Uh, it's an interesting one because the lyrics are all about... Uh, it was it was written when actually the, the European Union tried to become more political and more about a union than just trading stuff. And they were like, mm, on our perspective in the UK, people don't seem to believe in that. So is it going to go very well? And so the lyrics are very massive attacky, quite of paranoid. And when I talked about about it with the guys for the book, they were like, we're so sorry we yeah. predicted it. <laughs> <laughs> We're really sorry. We love you. Actually, one of the band members is uh, Italian himself. Yeah. They have a strong link with places like southern Italy or Paris or uh, Portugal, Spain. Mm. And they loved in Poland and stuff like that. So you, you kind of... Uh, Missing an opportunity there to reconcile with the rest of us. Absolutely. And, and, and sort of speaking about immigration and immigrants producing wonderful things, do we think that Britain is changing its mind about immigration? Do you get any sense as a migration specialist that, you know, some of the polls are showing it's just not the issue for, for British voters that it once was. Do you do you sense that actually we well, still Well, yeah, regret? definitely, because, you know, I've been living here on and off for 10 years because I was based in London 10 years ago, then I moved to Africa, I came back, and I always found that it was one of the most tolerant places I've ever been to because before then I was living in Miami, so you can imagine the difference. And um, when the referendum came up and... Um, some media used migration as a tool mm. for, to foster hatred like we can see everywhere we can see that in Europe obviously as well in Hungary and we've seen that in France too but then it, it, it was working for a while but no I think it's just we've seen the recent polls so I've read it into the BBC people were quite not keen to say why this has changed but it's obvious that in 2011 people were quitting uh, new immigrants coming in as something negative and it, they are not doing it anymore I think the debate and I th what I, I thought was very positive about this referendum and the consequences because they are then we must find some positive stuff is that people had to look back at some of their beliefs right and when you live in London or when you live in some of the other massive city in the country there are so many people doing the jobs that you know British people don't want to do or cannot do like nurses teachers for this and that uh, driving the bus or you know when you're in London you hear more of European accents than British accents in most restaurants bars you mm. know clubs so you know <laughs> I don't think these yeah. people are doing any harm so I know and, um, and and it was always the case that you were much more likely to be treated by an immigrant than behind one in a queue for a public service so well so it's been a long story right before Europeans Absolutely. it was like the Caribbean people and before then you know we had the empire and you could move people the way you wanted now people have been trying to move the way they want and it's become a little bit more challenging with Brexit we'll be talking about all of that and more on this week's show we're going to be looking at the calm before next week's storm which brings three days of meaningful votes amendments and horse trading all of which could result in a cent for May's deal, an OK for her deal, plus a ratification referendum, 
or no deal at all. We will also be covering what's happening in terms of last-minute trade-offs, are Labour or the ERG weakening, and can Theresa May bribe enough Labour MPs into backing Brexit? Spoiler alert, no. Plus, ladies who leave, the frankly bizarre video by Esther McVeigh and friends, will it persuade women to back Brexit? We don't think so. Why now and who are all those women anyway? And the prospect of the UK holding EU elections is becoming increasingly real. It might have to happen, but who will stand, who will vote, and will it amount to a de facto referendum if it happens? All of this and more after some reminders from Roz. Life's all well and good in the self-confirming elite bubble that is the Remainer sphere, but if you want to get out of your comfort zone, come and see Romaniacs at the podcast's live Politics Day in London on Sunday the 7th of April. Me and regulars Dorian Linsky, Nina Schick and Alex Andreu will be live on stage at this new one-day festival of politics podcasts, including The Week Unwrapped, Ian Dale and Jackie Smith's For the Many, Red Box from The Times, Samira Ahmed's How I Found My Voice and, if you really want to mix your drinks, James Dellingpole's Dellingpod. It's happening at the light, opposite Euston Station and tickets are on sale now at podcastlive.com. Patreon supporters get a discount on day tickets, as well as tickets to the Romaniacs show. And if you're not backing us on Patreon yet, it's a good time to sign up. You'll get discounts on live tickets, our very desirable merchandise, and, if you're on the $5 tier or upwards, our new monthly Ask Romaniacs show. The latest one is out now. Search Patreon Romaniacs or go to our Facebook page to find out more. And that's podcastslive.com for tickets to Podcast Live, hence the name. Thanks, Roz. Now, who's up for piping hot cup of Brexit news? Firstly, the week before, the big week that's going to settle everything, allegedly. As we wait to see what shape the final votes will take, there are already shifts in some of the basic positions. Attorney General Geoffrey Cox is said to have abandoned some key demands on the backstop. The ERG may be softening on their implacable opposition to May's deal. Labour's supposed commitment to a people's vote is suddenly looking a bit wobbly again. And Theresa May thinks she can solve it all by offering a Brexit bribe to wavering Labour MPs. Let's start with that Brexit bribe. Theresa May unveiled her Stronger Towns Fund, offering one Point six billion over six years, only for David Lammy to point out that the European Social and Re- Regional Development Fund put in 9.34 billion over the same period. And she was rebuffed by a spread of Labour MP- MPs, including Brexiteer Gloria Del Piero, who said, This is peanuts compared to what we have lost. Roz, it's just a bit too late to open this chequebook, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, given that so much of Brexit was driven by austerity, it's pretty ironic that this is happening now. And, of course, the European Social Fund and Regional Development, that's only a part of the money that towns will have lost because they've lost an awful uh, lot thanks to the cuts to councils. Uh, Some some councils now have had their budgets cut to nothing, their central government budgets cut to nothing. And so the idea that they will compensate for that is extraordinary. It's also worth pointing out that this is only England. Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, there is nothing for those and there is kind of vague talk that maybe in the future um, this money will be matched, but really, will it? And isn't that sort of more proof to the pudding that it definitely is a bribe because she's focused it on areas where there are Labour MPs representing Leave constituencies that she thinks she can bring over. If, if she'd spread it out more, it may be slightly more plausible that it wasn't a bribe. Yeah, and it doesn't really seem to have worked very well. Um, the only Labour MP I saw who was pro it was John Mann of Bassett Law, and he already voted for Theresa May's deal. So that's not somebody who's been brought over. That's mm. somebody who was already on side. So it really doesn't look like it's working. So do you, would she have just been in a better position if she'd done nothing at all? Do you think, do you think it's actively hurt her? Do you think there are some that may have been persuaded that now think... Well, 
I think it's hardened opposition and it's also drawing attention to the fact that these towns do need the money, Mm. which is not necessarily what she wants to do. Ingrid, what does this say about how the government sees the Brexit voting areas and their MPs? I mean, it's sort of quite damning, isn't it? Well, yes, as an irritant, I suppose. <laughs> it's something that has to be dealt with. And it's, it's yeah, for a party that for years has sort of said, you know, councils need to raise their own money and not rely yeah. on handouts from central government, it does seem slightly cynical, uh, to say the least. It's interesting, you know, MPs like Lisa Nandy, who has said, yeah, we'll take it, thanks very much, but it doesn't mean that we're going to vote for the deal. So, So it seems like... I mean, if she's hoping to buy off MPs, that's, uh, I don't think that's mm, going to happen. Mm, mm. She's been so cynical throughout the whole process that I, I can't... <laughs> the idea that handing, handing over a few notes is going to suddenly make people change their they mind. They worked for DUP. Yeah, yeah. no, did, but what did it? Yeah, because they, well, they've always vote, they always vote with her. Um, I think it's the also the idea that, you know, um, if, a, if Labour MPs were to just go, right, well, we'll vote with the deal, that trade-off is then that they have sort of they've neglected their duty on things like workers' rights, which if, if May gets her deal through, that's probably going mm-hmm. to be one of the things that goes. So mm-hmm. it would be very hard-pressed for a Labour MP to vote for the deal, but on the basis of a yeah, couple of quid. Melissa, what about in France? Do you think this sort of um, pork-barrel politics could work there? Well, I don't think it could work. It could definitely exist. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same over there. You know, some politicians have always used the European Union as you know, the evil, the, mm. everything that's wrong about politics come from there. But we even had some candidates who campaigned for Frexit. I don't mm. know if you've heard of them because they they haven't been as successful as uh, Mr. Farage. But François Asselineau has had, uh, he still has like some some of his posters in like neglected areas of Paris, you know, near the périphérique where people never mm. clean the walls. Mm. Uh, and of course, Marine Le Pen has gained a lot of voters uh, mm. through hating the European unions. And we know that she's an MEP mm. and she's misused the money. So it's like, mm. you know, I mean, it's exactly the same story. It's just we're lucky that I think in France, a lot of people don't see the EU in the same way at all. I mean, mm. we we are like one of the funding members and the EU wouldn't exist without France, and Germany mm. and probably Belgium and the Netherlands. So it's just used by it's not as much efficient. It's 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 a topic that comes back with Les Gilets Jaunes, you know, all the protests, the yellow vests, they're called here. Mm. They obviously decry the new, I mean, the trend to privilege big business. Mm. And the EU was for years and years based on, like, the agricultural policy, mm. which was a good thing for France or yes. Poland mm. because we were agricultural countries. But now with agribusiness, everything has changed. So agriculture started the movement with the Gilets Jaunes, but they, they are suffering. They're not taking care of the land or the what they're mm. planting anymore. They're just used by the big system. Mm. So it's complicated for them to, to, to just thank the EU, even though they still pouring money in rural zones but luckily for now it's not become like such a battle on a political field it's just used by the very extreme right so we don't think it's going to work but is is that because of where she's targeting other other areas that it, it could have worked should she have tried to bring in some of the i don't know Areas in like the southwest, I don't think there's much earmarked for for the northeast. No, there's not, and also um, quite a lot of the money is has to be bid for, which will naturally go to With councils. About six hundred million of it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's uh, a reasonable amount that yeah. that has to be has to be bid for, and that basically will go to councils that have got their act together more and mm. have the time because it costs money to put in bids. And no, I, I was surprised actually by how little went mm. to the southwest, and I was also surprised that nothing had gone to Wales because mm. Wales did vote to leave uh, narrowly, but it did vote to leave, 
and it is an area with a lot of deprivation. Mm. Yes, I mean, I'm sure that that's part of partly why they get quite a bit of EU funding already is because some of the wards in Wales are amongst the poorest in Northern yeah. Europe. And it's not just South Wales, and you think of the ex-mining areas mm. as well. It's also West Wales mm. um, uh, has a lot of deprivation in the north, uh, the north coast as well. Mm, mm, mm. And nothing for them at all. Um, Let's move on now because we've also got Labour's promise of, of backing a public vote. So it was a week ago uh, that, that we saw the leadership of the Labour Party sort of change its plan um, and say, actually, now now we probably um, are happy to uh, back a second referendum um, if her deal is voting down. That's beginning to attract some cynicism. Um, Roz, you're, you're pretty wary of Corbyn's commitment to stopping Brexit. Do you think everybody was wrong to, to be very uh, excited about that U-turn last week? I think everyone got a bit overexcited and that was understandable. Was it was it just to disarm the tiggers, do you think? Is that what, yes. what his shot was? I think I think that's what it was to do. And I think the plan is to ensure that the Labour leadership can say, oh well, we we did have a vote. But it didn't go our way. We did, uh, you know, we did uh, demand a vote in the Commons on a second referendum, but we didn't win it. And the reason why they won't win it is because a number of Labour MPs are implacably opposed to the idea of a second referendum. They've been quite vocal about that, people like Caroline Flint, and they will not change their minds. In fact, some of them claim, uh, Caroline Flint claims up to 70 Labour MPs are opposed to a people's vote. So I think the strategy here, and I think unfortunately it was a strategy, was to promise something and to let the leadership off the hook. But ultimately, although John McDonnell has said he will lip whip Labour MPs, there are whips and there are whips. And there is no way, given that a lot of Labour MPs defied the whip in voting for Theresa May's deal in the first place, there is no way that they will automatically vote for a people's vote just because mm. they've been told to. Mm. So, Melissa, this, this, this Kyle Wilson amendment, which is basically will back your deal as long as you put it back to the people. Um, do you think there's a risk that, that you know, as what Ros is sort of saying, that that the leadership can take credit for saying, yes, we, we support that and, and whip for its MPs to back it, but that that whip is so loose and it isn't really, you know, the, the backbenchers don't fear it, that actually if they abstain or, or, or vote against it, yeah, I totally believe. Repercussions. I totally believe that nothing is firm enough in that case. But I mean, it's so late. I and mean, I think we know that most of the Labour voters or Labour supporters or Labour members, as such, are, are vastly pro-Remain, mm. right? Mm. So they, there was no campaign because of Labour on the side of Remain, almost because it was so you know lukewarm about saying that they support staying, and maybe they had a bad strategy. Maybe they didn't mm. see things coming. Maybe they don't read the right newspaper. I don't know what it is. But I think now. Uh, the people's vote is one thing that a lot of people are in favour of it because it's like the only thing that seems like can have a meaning. I mean, can be done and be done properly. Maybe if there are three options, for mm. instance, that some people could could take at least uh, avoid the mess or remain, and mm. then people could express themselves a second time. I, I hate the fact that some people can say it's not democratic. Obviously, if you vote, it's Elections democratic, are democratic, right? They are democratic. You vote for the UMP every five years. I think Labour has been just willing to be in power, and I think they're wrong in the sense that they want to fight austerity, but because austerity is what uh, the Tories have been able to just throw massively because of Brexit, it's, it makes 
makes no sense like to say we'll be the savior if we were elected and if we were in government but no one wants your government at the moment we don't know what you promise so and and you, what are you going to fight it with exactly if you tank the economy they live a because bit, of brexit they live a bit in a different yeah. like dimension according to me because the way they want to fight austerity mm. or the economy as it's mm. put as such is not related to what's actually happening like if you lose a lot of jobs if you lose a lot of people investing in this country and how, how are you going to help how are you get more taxes or going to get more people exactly. employed and satisfied mm. and then you have like the human rights effects of all these people being in limbo like mm. all the foreigners so I, I don't see how that could help mm. labor mm. so mm. I, I don't know they, they should really c- come back with something that sounds at least a little hopeful mm. I certainly think that um, from our work at Better Britain we know that the leadership are probably pretty firm on on next week's votes and it is the backbenchers in the north of England particularly few in the Midlands um, who are the worrisome ones um, this morning actually popular in Limehouse MP Jim Fitzpatrick did say that he would vote for her deal come what may but he has sort of always said that and did vote for it the last time so again that's not one she's won but there are these ones that we are a bit concerned about the ones she's tried to bribe most of them have rejected that bribe but if anybody is listening to this show and lives in one of those seats uh, please do make sure that you're you're ramping up the pressure on the MP but in terms of Labour Party politics, Ingrid, this is all happening against the backdrop of other internal warfare that's not just about Brexit happening within the party. Obviously, all of the anti-Semitism stuff, we've had the sus- suspension of Chris Williamson. Um, so has stop Brexit, uh, stopping Brexit become permanently entwined with centrists among the, the Corbyn faithful? And are they sort of therefore just rejecting it all as Tom Watson and the Tiggers on manoeuvres and they just can ignore it? I mean, the, the anti-Semitism thing is a separate issue from Brexit to a certain extent. And it's, it's one that I, I feel quite emotional about actually. I'm so appalled at what's happening currently, uh, and how it's being dealt with in the Labour Party. I mean, say what you will, and you know, the Tories sacking 14 Tory members for Islamophobia. That's probably that's almost certainly it's a PR stunt in the sense they go, look, we've done that, we've mm-hmm. we've dealt with mm-hmm. it. Whereas Labour in 12 in two years have sacked Nothing. 12 or less mm-hmm. 12 fewer uh, for anti-Semitism. So, um, I mean, that wasn't the point I was going to make, but but I I. Brexit has has taught me a lot about politics in the last couple of years, which is that if you have a strong enough message, core message that people who want to believe in you can get behind, like, you know, take back control or for the many, not the few, Mm. if, if you're then attacked... You know, if uh, with claim, you know, if people say, "Oh, you're 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 an anti-Semitic party," or you're not dealing with Brexit very well, you can then go, "Oh, do you not do you not believe that poor people should be saved, uh, or do you not believe in helping people in, in poverty, the you know the most the most needy in our society?" Because if you're if you attack the uh, Jeremy Corbyn, that's what you that's what your to his supporters, that's what you're doing. You're attacking mm-hmm. poor if people. If you're not with us, really, if you're not so, with us, yeah. if um, they, they're you know, anti-Semitism and and um, accusations that they're not being very good on Brexit, it's all part of some bigger mm-hmm. strategy to stop mm-hmm. Jeremy Corbyn getting into power. And um, it's just you know, so it becomes and and with Brexit, it's become like with the anti-Semitism thing, it's become. Um, yeah, that if you align yourself with people that sort of accuse the leader's office, then you are a certain kind of person. And that, I think, is probably something that Corbyn has, and his team have, have um, used to their advantage. It I, hasn't hurt them. I, what I have been spurred on by this week has been, um, and actually last week, but, but I don't know if you saw yesterday, there were a group of uh, Labour MPs who unveiled a Love Socialism, Hate Brexit banner. And they're very firmly on the left of the Labour Party. So these are people like Lloyd Russell Moyle and Chi and Wera. Um, and they are, you know, saying 
all the right things and beginning to emerge and 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 take ownership of all of this themselves. So I think that's pretty positive. Uh, they are certainly trying to flex their muscle against anti-Semitism it, it, and and stop Brexit. Yeah. Do you feel that maybe he is beginning to to to, to feel that the the power within the party is shifting towards some of those younger um, MPs like Clive Lewis? And I don't know. Is the answer that I would like to? I'd like to be positive about it, but because I, 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 I have sympathy with Labour MPs because it's very hard to know what to do on Brexit because they have no, they haven't had a coherent strategy from the leadership's office, um, and they want to. You know, I imagine some some MPs do believe inherently that that they should deliver mm-hmm. in the, vote, the, mm-hmm. the result of the referendum or that they should avoid no deal. So voting for May's deal, I suppose, is the way that they can ensure that. But what, from a Remainer's point of view, if we lived what, in a sort of fantasy land, sort of what, what could Labour have done, yeah. do you think? Well, certainly where we've seen some Labour MPs who have taken a position opposed to their constituency vote in 2016, they've actually been able to shift it. They've, they've, they've shown leadership and actually their constituents, far from... I mean, obviously you always get some mouth frothers, you know, being terrible towards you over it. But actually they, they've been able to take their constituents with them and they've been able to act in that leadership position that we've needed them to and to be able yeah. to have a very honest conversation Honesty with their the key, constituents the about, hey, I know, I know that it was a kickback. I know it was against a coalition government and a Tory-led government. Um, I know you weren't kicking back against me, but trust me, this it's is the not, jobs that yeah. are going to be hurt here. This isn't the way to fix all of the problems that, that we're facing. So I just, I, I guess I wish they would have all just been a bit more brave and had the courage of their convictions because very few of them are actual leavers. Yeah. The killer has surely been that Labour has aligned itself with the Conservatives' hard Brexit all along. And OK, we had a shift on the customs union. doesn't make a lot of difference. Basically, it's very hard for an opposition to criticise the government when it shares its vision of what Brexit should look like. So one area where Labour probably do diverge, Ros, from the Conservative Party is on the whole issue of Ireland and the backstop. Horrible to put you on the spot with this, <laughs> such an enormous issue. But, but it, you know, in, in a couple of sentences, where are we right now with the backstop? Well, the backstop is basically a way to avoid a hard border in Northern Ireland. And the where we are now is fundamentally to see whether there can be a time limit on the backstop because that is what the DUP were demanding basically this morning. They were saying they would probably be okay with a deal that meant there was a time limit on it. And the EU, understandably in my view, are not playing ball because they say, well, what would change to make us allow you to have a, a, a time limit. We, we would need to know what was going to be in place so that the whole arrangement could end. Indeed, and ever so quickly, Melissa, on uh, time limits and the EU being very reasonable about extending things, if next week her, ve- her deal does get voted down um, and then on Wednesday the Commons vote on an extension regardless of whether they vote for it or not, if they do vote for it, the EU still has to agree it. What are the chances? I think they're next to zero. I mean, seriously, Northern Ireland is completely underestimated over here, but it's one of the main issues. I don't think it's possible. I mean, there are a lot... People don't realise how complicated it is for the rest of the EU. It's just... It would be the main border, just like Poland and Ukraine uh, is the main border on the other side. So they have to be firm. Yeah, It has to be no. It has to be... I think they're closer to suggesting give back Northern Ireland to Ireland 
done anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but just um, on the actual giving us an extension mm-hmm. on Article 50, do you think they would be open to that if we didn't tell them what it was for, what sure. we would plan to I do mean, in that I extension I think Donald Tusk, Donald Tusk has been quite uh, um, vocal about this, is ready to give them more time, but they have to sound like they know what they're doing and what they're asking that time, for. Rather than just more meaningless votes. And then, of course, there's the European elections looming in. If you Indeed. want to have the extension, you have to organise uh, elections for at least, I guess, the Europeans to vote here and to probably elect British MPs as well. Indeed. And we are going to come on to that. But before we do, ladies who leave, ladies, not women, ladies, yeah. um, <laughs> something even uh, that makes even less sense than quantum Brexitology. There was this very strange video in which Esther McVeigh and other female Brexiters tried to recast leave as a feminist issue, which is funny because most of their talking points uh, men dominating TV coverage in the referendum run-up, men writing and presenting the majority of print and radio content on Brexit were pretty much identical to those raised by women against Brexit. Um, <laughs> for more details, please go to uh, Best for Britain forward slash sexist dash Brexit, where you can find out exactly why Brexit is a feminist issue, um, or not a feminist issue. Uh, but with depressing inevitability, it turns out that uh, one of the ladies uh, is a Pendle councillor who got in trouble for making racist jokes. Mum of four, Belinda De Lucy, turned out to have a husband who's in private equity. And another one was, you know, podcast favourite, Julia Hartless Brewer. Ingrid, what do you make against Ladies for Leave? Uh, do you know what? I've just got a noise or a... Duh! I can't... I'm so... I watched that video and I... It just speaks... Every fibre in my body went into revolt. Uh, And I think things like the mum of four, uh, Belinda de Lucy, the idea that she's a mum of four. She can't lie to you. Uh, She's a mum of four. She wants the best for her kids. Um, She's a mum of four. She's a trustworthy... She's just... She's a mum of four. That's who she is. Yeah. Um, Can't trust a mum of three. No. (laughs) She... Yeah, she loves kids. She's had four of them. And... um, it just, which to me is that it immediately goes against the idea that it's a feminist issue. Um, but also the fact that her husband's in private equity. It's like, I want, I want to leave because for my kids and so that my husband can deregulate the economy and we can make loads of money. Um, I I also, the fact that their, their sort of figurehead is Esther McVeigh, who willfully misled Parliament uh, and didn't resign. Um, the fact that that's their figurehead, I mean, that is really yeah. scraping the barrel. I think she mentions the word trust about 20 times in that video. <laughs> the the Have they no shame? That is my refrain for today. Have they no shame? Um, the irony completely lost on them, clearly. But also, the because you know, I looked at it, I was like, that is... <laughs> That's not a well-produced video, but then maybe that's the point. Yeah. It makes me think that best, the Best for Britain video that with, I directed. Well, yeah, with you. That was... I should have just stuck people in a toilet and just <laughs> turned a camera on them and, and, and have done. I think it probably is purposely down a hill because they've yeah. used the Tesco Value logo and repurposed it's it. It's so as cynical. Those, I yeah. can't bear it. Yeah. She's called Belinda De Lucy, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and then She's never been Julia near a Tesco. Hartley Brewer. You know, they are yeah, all double-barrelled exactly. uh, plummy ladies. I mean, the tone is is absolutely great. Uh, Julia did say, Brexiteers aren't all old white men, you know. They include us ladies as well. Um, and Mum of Four, as you say, Belinda De Lucy, says, retweet if you think our children's votes should matter. But, you know... 
sod all the children uh, who didn't get to vote last time and uh, whose futures are being taken away from them. Um, so the pool seems um, pretty limited. They're all pretty posh. I think we've established that. Um, they have got a, a, a token uh, non-white person, um, but th- they do turn up in this and every Leave.eu video. Um, are, are we just doing that standard sneery Remainer thing, though, Roz? I mean, should we just accept them on face value um, or argue against them rather than ridiculing them? Well, I mean, it is tempting to ridicule as them, a mum, As a mum of two... <laughs> so you're only half as trustworthy yeah, as Belinda. Yeah, yeah. No, um, it's difficult for me because I instinctively don't like political campaigns that appeal um, directly to one sex or the other. And usually it's the women to whom they appeal. And I say this about, about um, the anti-Brexit movement as well. I just don't like it. I don't like the fact, for example, that in the run-up to the referendum, Leave EU targeted its NHS adverts online exclusively at women. Because, you know, it's only women who care about the NHS because we're mm. also caring. Mm. Um, whereas, in fact, just as many men die. It's bizarre. And, and didn't, <laughs> um, didn't, didn't and Labour's pink bus go really badly a few years ago? Was it Harriet Harman's pink bus, was it? Was it one of the... Um, Yeah, I I think that uh, I didn't I didn't enjoy it. But the thing I hated about this video was the whole kind of Women's Institute chumminess about it. Mm. It was all and I don't I don't like to slag off the Women's Institute because I hear they're very modern, gorgeous organisation now that does a lot more than just make jam. But it was just ladies, are your ears burning? Because ours are. And it it was it. It was it was like listening to a couple of women chatting in the loo because I suppose I thought about this because of the ladies as well. A a couple of women chatting in the loo and you think you know you sometimes overhear a couple of women chatting in the loo and you think oh my god what are they saying oh this is embarrassing oh my god I just have to get out of this loo very quickly and that was how I felt. Can I can I just say that they do have they only have two thousand six hundred and forty followers I checked this morning. My dentist has more. So, <laughs> as in, I don't think it's a big... I don't think they've made a huge impact, to be fair. Great. I it, follow them, is, is, just for sort of amusement purposes. Is your dentist it. a Remainer? He... I do not know. Ooh. Oh, I should find out. Yeah, don't let him in your No, no, no. But God, it was, no. It was just identity politics at its worst, because it was just saying, oh, we're women, listen to us, mm, because we're women. Mm, in mm. that short video, they didn't actually explain any of the reasons why it was important mm. that women's voices be heard, what they were saying, what they wanted to do. It was just, listen to us. And I find that so boring. I think one of the reasons why they may have timed it now is because um, all of the research that we've done is showing that the fastest switching groups from Leave to Remain are younger women, uh, and they're particularly ones who voted Conservative in 2015 and Labour in 2017, um, aged sort of between 20 and, and 50. Uh, they're switching in their droves towards Remain, so they're probably Good. reacting against that. Um, so just, you know, quick poll around the, the podcast studio. What do we prefer, ladies who leave or, drumroll, Nigel Farage's 200-mile march to leave from Sunderland to London? Melissa? That's a tough one. Mm. I, I didn't mm. got to say how much I d- disliked the previous video, but um, <laughs> can have, uh, I can have a plan B. Everyone has a plan B on everything. I want a plan B on that question. Um, yeah, not good. Um, I, I don't know, but... Um, Nigel Farage is trying to hang on, I guess. You know, everyone is trying to reinvent themselves at the moment mm. uh, on, on this issue. Um, let's these ladies ex- express themselves, whether it's just um, 
it's not the way forward definitely don't tell people what you think they think they should think etc etc mm. if women can express themselves there'll be as many women mm. as many other voters mm. and there's no need to represent them so mm. it's all manipulation both of this mm. it's interesting it's, there was a mum's net um, discussion about people's vote earlier this week with Caroline Criado Perez and it bombed actually it didn't go well at all because it came across as patronising because it came across as one woman trying to tell loads of other women what they think and why they should think it and, and why Brexit is bad on those issues when I think a lot of their readers are women on maternity leave who identify more as businesswomen and lawyers and nurses and, and doctors than they do necessarily about, you know, the, the very sort of singular issues around um, women's rights post-Brexit and, and whether they're a threat. I reckon Nigel is just, is just jealous because he's seen how many... Remainers turn out uh, mm. th- nearly three quarters of a million on their march, and now he wants to do something his similar in his own march. march. Before we move on, everyone in Britain loves elections. We can't get enough of them, especially Brenda from Bristol. Not another one! <laughs> but hold tight because we may well be participating in the 2019 European elections on the 23rd of May. And Ian, Dorian, and Alex are down the Electoral Commission as we record, getting their candidate forms in. As we've discussed on the show before, if our exit from the EU is delayed, it means we'd still be a member when the elections happen, and unless we take part in the EU Parliament itself, it could be effectively unconstitutional. Stephen Kinnock MP, a big fan of uh, Common Market 2.0, insists we can only hold a second referendum if we take part in the 23rd of May European Parliament elections. While May says us participating in the European elections would make a mockery of the referendum. Obviously, I have my position on this, but let's wargame it. What is going to happen? Are the Tories and Labour going to run candidates? Was. I think they have to. Um, it's going to be very difficult to bring it all together and bring it all together fast enough. It's going to be an extraordinary effort. But basically, the trouble is, if you don't run the candidates, you will get the far right, you will get UKIP uh, or whatever Nigel Farage's new party is um, running candidates. And because of the way turnout works people will vote for those uh, other people will abstain because there's nothing to vote for and you'll get those people being elected so you have to have a wide range of ca- uh, candidates otherwise it'll be a shit show basically and on what platform do they run i mean obviously conservatives are probably you know quite obviously would be running on a pro brexit platform Melissa, what do you think about Labour? That's that's quite tricky. But it's absolutely necessary. I think everyone should run. I think Labour has a few hours to kind of change their mind and be up front if you want what's best for the country. I mean, there's so many issues at stake. And also we know that these these elections are very key for the future of Europe, but also very key for the futures of, like, you know, extremism in, mm, in a lot mm. of countries. We've seen that because a lot of people don't take the MEPs as seriously as their own MPs, they tend to vote for more extreme. Also, it's a more proportional vote, etc. So you have to be involved. And then let's not forget that whatever happens with the extension, we're still in a phase where there's supposed to be two years of negotiation to actually decide how the UK is actually going to retreat from the EU. Even if it takes place like this spring, there's still more discussions to go. And we've seen that there's two 
two years I've not been enough to decide on anything so this might take 10 years mm. so do you really want to have like a really cool platform where you only have like fake MPs or the main parties are not in, involved or they have not campaigned again and for Labour who as we said before has not been really strong in its message during the referendum campaign and if there is another vote the people's vote for the referendum for Brexit itself then you know it's it's all related mm. you have to I think that, I don't know why nobody's talking about it Can I ask a very what might be stupid question which is that Theresa May says she doesn't want that to happen she yeah. doesn't want there to be elections Correct. because of the message it was sent to the electorate can she stop people fielding candidates or does it have to be directed from a director from government that we're allowed they're allowed appeal parties are allowed to stand for European elections good question no I don't think she can block it um but at the moment we aren't participating because we will have left on the 29th of March 2019 if there's an extension but yeah. if there is and if there is an agreed extension to that I think she couldn't, no. And and the Electoral Commission has certainly budgeted for running European elections. Um, that was released under an FOI last year. Um, they've had to ring fence money for that. So all of the infrastructure is in place. I know that the Liberal Democrats, for instance, have been um, selecting all of their candidates mm. up and down the country over the last six months uh, in anticipation. And, of course, we saw the independent group go to the Electoral Commission yesterday, um, Tuesday uh, of this week, that we're recording to register themselves as a political party. So I wonder if that's to make sure that they're in time for the, for the cut-off date for that. Um, what I'm not entirely sure is what that cut-off date is with in terms of the European uh, side of it, whether yeah, you have to have been registered by, by a certain time. It's usually at least six weeks before polling day. Yes, but I don't think the one government as such can prevent the elections from happening or mm. there are some candidates to register for mm. it. We mm. should check constitutionally. Are mm. you tempted? To <laughs> run, to yeah. stand. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, oh. I, I hadn't thought about but it. But now, um, yeah, But I mean, presumably, it's interesting, isn't it? So if an extension was voted for, we'd have a situation where presumably the Lib Dems and, yeah, as you say, maybe mm-hmm. the Independent Group mm-hmm. or the Greens would the field Greens candidates well. because yeah. if they mm-hmm. if they ha- if they were... Uh, a, <laughs> our producer's holding up a Remain- ph- uh, phone case with Romaniacs on it. You're saying we should f- form our field own political Romaniacs group. Field Romaniacs candidates. Field Romaniacs candidates, brilliant. Or we could be like the Labour and Co-op party. So, you know, when... When, when Labour candidates who are also co-op members stand for election, they are standing as both the Labour and co-op. So, right. so people could be Lib Dem, Labour, Conservative, even if they're people like Anna Subri or whoever, and, and they could be and Romaniacs. Brilliant. So we could be registered and they could, yeah. they could be identified and they could run on that ticket. So it was very identifiable on the ballot paper as to who was... I feel a so goodie. new, and new he was mugs. A I feel new mugs coming on. <laughs> Can I just ask a sort of slightly sombre question about it? Um, as sort of liberal metropolitan elites um, who eulogise about the wonders of the EU and an open society, what happens if there is a huge swing towards populist candidates getting elected across Europe and all of a sudden after the European elections in May, it looks like a very different kind of EU to the one that we've long been championing and selling to people as this wonderful thing and it actually looks like a bit of a monstrous place. What do we think about that, Melissa? What a nightmare. <laughs> oh, God. As if we didn't have enough problems. Uh, it's, it's a possibility. I mean, you've read um, probably the op-ed from uh, the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, mm. published this week in, in most of uh, Europe's newspapers. So everyone's worried because, again, these elections are not as covered as the national elections. So obviously all the candidates who... I mean, there's National Farage and Marine Le Pen are MEPs. So what do you say? Yeah. Uh, like Ingrid's always been 
been my dream to be an MEP. Like, I love politics, but it's difficult to be uh, into politics when you're a journalist. So MEP was kind of like the safe place. Mm -hmm. But this year is is a tough one. So it will take a lot of, like engagement from the parties from the press to actually take it seriously for a change it's it's a huge challenge but what you what you mentioned can happen and then then we'll be in a in an even bigger disaster because after that will come like important elections in some key countries as well mm. and then it, it might just be you know a ball in chain and just a downward mm. spiral effect but let's not go there let's let's remain optimistic you never know it might go the other way yeah i think people have been watching quite closely what's been happening here and happening in the u.s and you might just find a surge of people going, you know what, not in my name, no, yeah, no more, exactly. thank you. Exactly, just like the march has proved, and there's another mm-hmm. march on, on, mm-hmm. on in a few weeks. Yes. So, And, of course, Europeans can vote in European elections. So the EU's 27 nationals living in the UK can vote in European elections. So that's great, and for a change, they are being enfranchised. So hopefully they'll turn out in force this time too. And even if the populists do sweep the board, it will take a while to dismantle all the things that we know and love about Europe. Freedom of movement, for example, and the pillars of Europe. They are fundamentally liberal pillars and they are based around Nova society. And we've got to hope that, as with Donald Trump in the US and his ability to dismantle the things that make American democracy good the, in four years, or hopefully is it, they will remain intact. And I hope the same thing happens if populists get elected to the European Parliament. Regular listeners know that the worse it gets out there, the more we fight like Alan Partridge to keep it light. And that means the daft question, where every week or so we rest our eyes off the news ticker to think about Brexit-related matters in another way. The daft question for this week is, which figure from the other side would you like to turn and convert to the cause of Remain and... What bloody use would they be? The only rule is you can't have Boris Johnson because he barely believes in Brexit anyway. Melissa, who have you chosen? Well, I've chosen Jeremy Corbyn, so okay, <laughs> okay, officially is not for leave, right? Uh-huh. He never said he was for leave, but I think it was it was one of the key player that should have been supporting Remain. I know why he doesn't like the European Union, and I can understand that sometimes we have opinions, etc. But you have a lot of responsibility. You, you you know you're the leader of a party. The party has a message. Obviously, he's been the weakness in mm. this whole campaign. I mean, a lot of people have have been doing things maybe mm. too weakly. But if he could finally understand that he's not protecting any workers' right, or he's not talking directly to the heart of West Yorkshire by being like this kind of flaky figure, not knowing what to see. I think you should think about the future and, and, you know, do we really want to be all scattered in small environment and, you know, our biggest... Um, competitors now are like not even the US anymore. It's China. It's blooming things like countries like India and Nigeria. Let, let's just try to stick together. And we've, we've tried not to trade together, and it's it's not been so cool before then. So he, if he was around, if he was able to have a strong speech, if he was even able to say maybe I was wrong, you know, this kind of thing, you wish some politician <laughs> would say someday. Suddenly, it, it would bring a new breath of fresh air, and we could have definitely a different discussion. It's you know, it's the main part. 
party opposing the prime minister. And we, we, know, voice. we know that when he believes in a campaign, he's a phenomenal campaigner. Exactly. It's just he's terrible when exactly. he doesn't really. That's so why, you know, again, I, I, energy. I don't have British citizenship, so I've never been able, unfortunately, I wish someday uh, to vote in for MPs elections. But I've always been a great admirer of, of his work as a campaigner along the years. I think, you know, he's proved many times that he was right on the war in Iraq, on other issues. And he supports the Palestinian. I think, you know, all the things we're not going to get there again, but about anti-Semitism, it, what's happening in the party and what's happening with Jeremy Corbyn are two different things. He is not an anti-Semite. But he, if he could be this strong person, take, like embracing what happened this past two years and saying, listen, we are, we are, we are on the edge now mm-hmm. and we need to, to just have a proper look at what's happening, that could definitely be a game changer. Great. So, Ingrid, from... Corbyn to who are you going to pick? Who are you going to um, turn? Monsieur Farage. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just I, for me, he's the sort of symbol of all of this. Uh, I mean, obviously, start the you know anti-European movement started way before him, but he became the sort of totemic figurehead uh, that people uh, seem to rally behind. So, if we could get him and his. I'm not going to say, I was going to say something rude about him, but I'm not, I'm bigger than that. Um, <laughs> I was going to talk about his physical appearance. I'm not going to do that. But, uh, but if we could get him to turn and, and come over to, to our side. And bring all the, the golf club members yeah. with him. I think people would, uh, that would genuinely blow people's minds. Mm. Um, that would be a big, a big scalp, as it were. Mm. Um, and Roz, who, who are you going to pick out of the lovely bunch of Brexiters that we all so admire? I'm going to pick Michael Gove. Um, he's a dark horse, Michael Gove. Um, as we know, he only narrowly decided to campaign for Brexit with Boris Johnson anyway. But since then, he's gone full Brexit and joined the European Research Group. Um, so he's very, he's very influential, but he's always played his cards very carefully and he doesn't come across as a hardcore, nutty Brexiteer. Mm. Um and that served him very well. But I think given that he is one of the bigger thinkers in the cabinet, which is not saying a lot, but it's saying something. <laughs> Everything's relative. Everything's mm-hmm. relative. Um, I think that he could have a profound influence. Yeah. Great. So so we've got Gove being very influential within cabinet. We've got Farage being influential with voters of a certain age and socioeconomic status. And we've got somebody who... Probably wouldn't bring the young people because they're already with us, but would maybe bring some of those backbenchers in the north that we absolutely need to make sure that they get on our side and help us defeat Brexit. I'm going to go for um, a lesser-known um, MP, uh, the MP for Eastbourne, Stephen Lloyd, um, who resigned the Lib Dem whip over Brexit um, a few uh, months ago because what the fucking point <laughs> of being a Liberal Democrat MP is it if you're not even going to fight Brexit? So, yeah, I bring him. So, yeah, interesting that we've chosen four white men to try and turn towards the cause. Shall we have them on the show if they all turn? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Once they've turned, but definitely not before. Finally, we spend so much time with our heads in the Brexit fog that sometimes it's hard to step back and spot the truly big things that matter. So we're taking advantage of the lull this week to look at elephants in the room, the massive factors that ought to be in the Brexit debate but just aren't. So everyone's chosen one, and we're going to start with Ingrid. Uh, What's your elephant in the room? My elephant in the room is, is Brexit men's fault? Um, now, obviously, I'm obviously, jo- I'm joking and I'm being deliberately inflammatory. Um, Romaniac's clickbait uh, headline. Um, but I, 
Yeah, I. It was funny because, as as you know, since since Brexit, I sort of I consume information and sort of try and I'm trying because to try before to, that you were just, just like was, a vessel fairly just bovine like, yeah. yeah just sitting on my sofa uh, scratching my pants scratching my pants doesn't make sense um, but yeah I am um, I it's really interesting to me that you know more women voted remain than men I think the ladies who leave ladies for leave thing has sort of stirred something up in me again it felt so wrong because to me Brexit is not a feminist it's not a feminist endeavour so the idea that these women are going look you need to talk we need to speak up because it's what we believe in is 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 totally ludicrous Um, I saw there was really interesting after the Lord Ashcroft poll immediately after the, the referendum result that sort of examined why people was looking at sort of uh, slightly deeper reasons as to why people might have voted uh, how they voted um, and so they were asked questions about you know their philosoph- ideologies and philosophies yeah, the values. Um, yeah exactly and one of the one of the and someone on Twitter um, the handle Supermass Kid pointed out that it wasn't it wasn't just men who voted to leave but it was people who consider feminism a force for ill in society by a factor of three to one wow. so that's a fairly huge mm-hmm. I would say uh a sort of damning indictment of, of Brexit and where it's come from as an impulse. Um, also, interestingly, I, I read that a lot of Brexiters uh, have history degrees. A lot of the main ones, uh, Rhys Mogg, Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson, Daniel Hannan, Douglas Carswell, they all either studied uh, uh, history or classics, and as we know, history is peopled entirely by the achievements of, of men. Uh, and that is these sort of lone figures, these heroic figures. Um, and a lot of the dialogue or the, the language that has been used around Brexit has been that sort of language. Mm. Um, and that Giles Fraser article, I don't know, we, I don't know if we mentioned this on podcasts, actually, I don't think we have, but the one, uh, Giles Fraser, Fraser wrote an article uh, that was widely disseminated on Twitter about how, you know, the, a woman who'd rung up and said, what, what am I going to do about my elderly mother once all the EU care workers leave? And he's, well, maybe we should go back to the values we had before we palmed off our elderly on EU care workers. But what he meant by that is, you know, when women would stay at home and look after their elderly parents because that's who yeah. traditionally look look after the the ill and the infirm um and so it's to me yeah that's that was just my thought obviously i don't think hashtag not all men a lot of the listeners of this podcast began what the, what the no obviously not but it's but in the same way that uh it's it's a male problem but it's a male problem in the sense of the things that we have in, conferred on men as, as, as sort of good attributes mm. have got us into this mess. So that demasculation that's felt by these pathetic creatures that's sort of manifested in its... Yeah, or, or this kind of idea of what is good and brave and noble, um, uh, which is sort of looking back to a time gone by when women didn't have rights and migrants didn't have rights. And so so yeah, that's why that. they're scared. You know, mm. People voted because they want to go back to that time, and I, I don't. And people, right-thinking people, shouldn't. Um, but that's not to say that aren't, there are women who support Brexit. Obviously there are, and that's not to say there aren't many men who support Remain, because obviously there are. But, but we need to deal with this issue. as an issue, yeah. is, is it a male issue? That was That was all. Thank you. Melissa, you've gone for peace and defence agreements. Um, who is even talking about what we'd do if China, North Korea and the US went mad? Uh, how would we all hang together uh, in Europe? Yeah, I can't believe it was never on the table during the campaign, after the vote. It, it, starting with Northern Ireland, I mean, without the European Union, the 
agreement would never have been signed at, at, at a moment where, you know, it had been going on for so long. And now it's we've read articles saying that it's, it's just bad for the people. Mm. I've been to Northern Ireland twice talking about the border. I've been at the region mm. there. It's just not going to work. And mm. then what about the rest, as you mm. said? So it's, it's not I don't want to have a bleak picture, but, you know, Europe is already at war. We, yeah. we don't mention it because it's not on our soil, but we've been involved heavily in what's happening in the Middle East. We've been involved in other regions. We're still contributing to some of the peacekeeping missions. We can't even say where we would stand mm. as ourselves if anything mm. happened, you know, mm. in, in mm. the Near East, North Korea, whatever. Mm. It's, it's already difficult enough in, inside the EU mm. to get all the countries to agree because we've seen it when, with the war in Iraq. Like Poland disagreed with France mm. and, and the UK just went on to follow the US President George W. Bush anyway. So if we're not even talking about it and if we're not in the same body politically, then what can happen? And I, I don't know. Why are we doing that? Why are we doing politics? Why are we being Europeans if we don't want peace? And this is what I've always found so fascinating and frustrating about why Jeremy Corbyn isn't a bigger fan of the EU. Exactly. Because it is the greatest peace project in human civilization. Um, It's just so obvious, Corbyn. It's mad. And and, and I think this this point about, you know, you've got America being crazy under Trump, you've got China being increasingly aggressive in the East, and in the middle you've got this, you know, relatively stable liberal trading bloc that is actually crying out for the kind of leadership that Jeremy Corbyn could offer. So kind of almost back to your, your previous point about, yeah. you know, let's turn him and let's make him yeah. the, the person that It's all, it's that all very help. related. It's like a domino game Indeed. in my case, you know. You yeah. could just, just align all the stars and it would be a, a bright constellation of working politics. Absolutely. Ros, your elephant in the room is um, electoral law. Um, you know, uh, nothing has changed in electoral law campaign finance uh, since the last referendum. Obviously, there's been a huge amount in, in the press about it and the ability of um, Russia uh, and its influence, particularly on social media. Um, but we haven't put any new systems in place. What's what's t- tell us about that? Why 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 should we be talking about that more? It matters enormously if there's a people's vote. Um, because that is the kind of vote that Russia will try to influence. It also matters, of course, if there are European Parliament elections. Fingers crossed there are. I hope there are. But even if there aren't, there are local elections Mm. in May and there may well be a general election. And yet we haven't got to grips with the problems that have been thrown up by social media in elections. And we haven't rewritten our electoral law, which we badly need to do to take account of social media, mm. because it's just not a good fit anymore. Mm. The old the old model for campaigning doesn't fit. And we know this, but we can't yet acknowledge it because we're so busy with Brexit. And anyway, we don't want to look at it because mm. it's embarrassing to think that we might have been hoodwinked. There was a report from King's College London that came out last week and it was a a very in-depth look at how much influence Sputnik and Rush Today, various pro-Kremlin outlets, had had on political discourse in various various elections. And the findings were quite, quite shocking to me because it found that actually newspapers like The Sun and The Express and The Daily Mail had been copying and pasting, literally, stuff from Sputnik into their news articles. Mm. And it was only, well, I say only, it was only stuff about Russia's armaments and how much they had. But it shows just how willing the press is in this country to pick up on that agenda and to use that kind of copy. Mm. And this report didn't get much coverage. I wonder why. Um, Mm. uh, Yeah, it... There are many, many ways in which Russia is spreading disinformation in 
our society now and it will spread disinformation in new and innovative ways in whatever elections we have next. We don't even know how it will do it, but we haven't even caught up with the ways it did it last time yet. It's a moving target, mm. but we have mm. to try mm. and hit it. And and this feeds into exactly what I think Melissa was saying, that the new war will be an information war, um, mm. that the way that we will fight one another will be through data, it will be through cybersecurity, it will be through the dissemination of fake news. Um, and I think that the EU is now beginning to set up, a, a, I think under Macron, um, a pan-European organisation to look at this, and it's just terrifying that, that we wouldn't want to be on the inside of that. Yeah, they've done that already to an extent. They already do quite a lot of trying to expose disinformation, but it's got quite a limited budget and it hasn't as yet been very effective. They are ramping it up for the European Parliament elections. Great, and we need to follow. Um, My uh, elephant in the room um, is the fact that uh, the UK, and this again isn't a particularly well-reported stat, um, is that UK productivity growth over the last decade has been the worst since the 1860s. Um, So, yep, uh, we weren't even this bad in the Great Depression. Um, And so this is is poor productivity growth. So when we talk about being tough on the causes of Brexit, not just Brexit itself, uh, this is the sort of stuff that that I'm talking about. Um, I, I think that's... That's absolutely uh, outrageous. I think that austerity uh, is the the key factor in that. Um, When we look at productivity growth, productivity, there are three factors of production. You've got land, labour and capital, traditionally. Uh, Some economists will dial in and argue, I'm sure, uh, that there are others, but they're the sort of traditional three. And we've been squeezing the labour one more and more and more. And we've had stagnant wages. We've been putting more and more pressure on labour to be productive while allowing uh, land and capital to to go untaxed um, and and unsqueezed. And I think that that is all helping to contribute towards the the sentiment of othering and blaming people who uh, don't look and sound like us for, for the ills of our society. And I think it's absolutely outrageous that we're not talking more about that and on that bombshell that's the end of the show Uh, and we're rumbling down the tracks towards us we've got yet another thing to add in our brexit time capsule ingrid oliver you haven't chosen anything in ages so we're going to ask you again what are you going to add this time well i've I've said the words today a few times already and it's shame shame is going in the brexit time capsule i just wish there was yeah i'd like to anyone time yeah i just wish we go back to a time i miss the time when people would make mistakes and then be embarrassed about it and resign Uh, apparently that's not a thing that people do anymore So, yeah, bring back shame. For this week's European language clip, we've got some Basque from listener Martin Digon. Europan zehar, ze demontre gertatu zaigun Britaniarrei galdetzen ari dira. 2019 urtean, iru urte luzeta gero, Brexiterokeri hau edo zein moduz geldi dezagun, Europar guztion onerako. And that means... All over Europe, they're wondering what the hell has happened to us Brits. In 2019, after three long years, let's stop this Brexit madness in any way possible for the sake of all of us Europeans. Excellent thinking, Martin. Remember, we always welcome your bits of European language, so whether you're fluent in Serbo-Croat, Walloon or Transylvanian-Saxon, send us a short recording at info at romaniacs.com and we'll use the best ones. And that is the end of the show. Thanks to Melissa, Roz, Ingrid and producer Alex Rees as ever. Let's do the temperature check. Uh, Are we feeling a little bit more or less optimistic than last week, Roz? Uh, Less optimistic. More. I'm feeling more optimistic every week. There's no other way. I am always optimistic, so that's sort of no surprise there then. Sorry, Roz, uh, but I'm that's sure okay. you hope that we're right. We're there for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you people.
<laughs> we'll be back next week for more Brexit Wars. And until then, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a salute to some of our amazing Patreon backers. Bonjour et merci from me to Elliot Waters, Benji Aarons Richardson, Neil McCarty, Alistair McLean, Richard Ford, Martin Duncan, and Tony Smollett. Hello and thanks for your support from me to Declan Kelly, Ava Schuler, Naomi Winter Vincent, Stephen Doyle, Neil Payne, Dominic O'Connor, and Paul Richards. Greetings and thanks to Stefan Buzarowski, Aidan Kurt Ellie, Eileen McLennan, Adrian Servitz, Andrea Ecker, Steve Bannister, and Alex Winkle. And hello from me to Mez Wahid, Will Clutton, Matt Sheard, Rob Binks, Debbie Canning, Louise Duggan, and Michael Richard Ketley. Romaniacs was presented by Naomi Smith with Ross Taylor, Ingrid Oliver, and Melissa Shimam. The producer is Andrew Harrison, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.